And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in 2 Corinthians. So if you would turn there, we are in chapter 3, and we'll look at a portion of chapter 4 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers would love to bring you a Bible. In 1860, the newly elected president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, wrote a letter to a boy named George Latham. George was a friend of his eldest son, and they had both just graduated high school, and George hoped to go to Harvard. But a few years before, George's father had passed away, and so with sort of shrinking financial prospects, and with different things going on in his life, like many young boys who turned 18, he began to flounder. And so Abraham Lincoln saw this, noticed this, and he wrote a letter to George Latham to encourage him to fight for his education, to fight for his future. It's not a very long letter, but it really does sound like a surrogate father writing to their son to encourage him to dream. And this letter ends this way, quote, Let no feeling of discouragement prey upon you, and in the end, you are sure to succeed. Lincoln writes these words in many ways, I think, because he knew that discouragement can prey upon any of us. I think most often discouragement preys on just like the garden variety types of encouragement or discouragement, right? A friend that moves away, chronic knee pain, maybe that passive aggressive email that you get on Friday afternoon before you're going to go home for a weekend, that promotion that doesn't come your way that you deserve but you just didn't get. Failing, or worse, continually to fail in an area of your life. Maybe it's just driving home and getting cut off. Parenting. Discouragement can prey upon us all, even in the church. Maybe you find someone and they're not doing very well, and so you, to great sacrifice, maybe financially, your time, your talent, you pour into this person and help them, and they make progress, and then when they kind of get back on their feet, all of a sudden they ghost you. And you're like, why did I even bother? Maybe you invest in a a marriage, you and your wife, and you have them over, and you're eating dinners with them, and you take a uh, marriage course, and you pour into this marriage, and then it all falls apart, and they get divorced, and you just think, why did I even bother? You meet a young man or young woman, you pour into their life, you you lead them to Christ, you disciple them, you you teach them how to read their Bible, how to pray, you get them plugged into a church and they're growing and thriving, and then a year later, you meet at Starbucks and they say, I'm leaving, there's a really cool, bigger, exciting church, and that's where I need to go to grow in this next season of your life, and you're like, Discouragement can prey upon us all. It did for the Apostle Paul in his letter. We're studying this winter and spring. Paul received news that greatly discouraged him. 
a church that he planted, it was floundering. It wasn't going great. There was sin. There was conflict. Some leaders were theologically leading this church astray. It was a discouraging mess. And yet Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And then if you go to chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And the question before us all is, how in the world, in the midst of this discouragement, how did Paul not give in to discouragement? How did he not lose heart? How was he so bold? How did he just keep going? How did Paul get out of bed in the morning? In the midst of discouragement, whether it's the garden variety form or whether it's maybe the biggies, how was he still encouraged to keep on going? What's the antidote to the discouragement that we come in contact with each day, each week, each year? Title of this sermon, if I could put it briefly, This is a balm of boldness for the discouraged or maybe the disheartened. So if you're discouraged, this sermon is for you. Chapter 3, starting in verse 12. We'll go to chapter 4, verse 6. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but we, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This morning, usually we kind of go sequentially through a text, but Paul kind of skips around. So I'm going to go through this text more thematically. I'm going to go through this like a surgeon kind of dissecting pieces of it and putting it together. And because I'm doing it kind of like a surgeon, I've got kind of three headers that might fit that. So first, we're going to look at this disease that Paul is talking about, then a procedure, and then the remedy. So first, let's look at this disease that Paul is talking about that really can discourage many of us, starting in verse 
12 of chapter 3. Paul, if you notice, mentions Moses, and he's alluding back to the story of the Exodus in chapters 32 through 34. You might remember Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting the, the law, and he says, I want to see your glory, God, and God's glory comes down on Mount Sinai. Moses sees in part the glory of God, and then eventually Moses comes down from the mountain, and what he doesn't know is that his face shines with glory, and the people are terrified, aren't they? I mean, they had just worshipped the golden calf in sin, and so they think that the glory that's just radiating from Moses is going to kill him. And so Moses, in love, Moses veils his face so they can no longer see the glory of God through Moses. And here Paul alludes to this story to say that the veil which in Moses' day prevented Israel from seeing God's glory now is sort of a metaphor because it's not merely on Moses' face any longer, this veil, but it's actually a metaphor for the veil covering all unbelievers. Verse 14. After all, when some read Moses... When some read the Bible, especially the Old Covenant, they just see rules. They don't see what those rules were pointing to. If you remember from last week, we talked about how the New Covenant is far greater in its glory because though the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had great laws that were glorious, they were pointing to the greater glory because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant law. And yet, some can't see this glory. As verse 15 summarizes for us, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now, Paul's not saying that some people can't, like, intellectually grasp the gospel. He's not saying that people can't, like, articulate the parts of the gospel or they couldn't get the answers right if they took a test. He's saying that some people, when they hear about Jesus, when they read about Jesus, when they sing about Jesus, they're just unmoved related to Jesus. They're hardened towards Jesus. That's the disease that Paul is talking about. He talks about it again in chapter 4, verse 3. Go there. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Some people are blind to the gospel, blind to its beauty, blind to the majesty and the glory and the goodness and the love and the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Their hearts are hardened just like Pharaoh's heart was hardened back in the Exodus story. Uh, a couple, for the last like year or so, my wife and I have been working with one of our kids to learn their colors. They're at that age and We've been trying, and this, our child just cannot get some of their colors. And it almost looks like they're just guessing. And it's really frustrating. It's infuriating because we're like, I don't understand. This is really easy to teach some of our kids the colors. Why not this kid? And I think you know where this is going, but it's a perfect illustration for this. Two weeks ago, we got him tested. Evidently, he's colorblind. So he was guessing. A veil, in this sense, was over his Eyes. Well, in like fashion, spiritually speaking, some 
can't distinguish the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. He says, after all, the God of this world has blinded some. Some people hear the Bible, see the Bible, read the Bible, hear the summons of God to come and experience the the beauty and majesty of, of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and are just unmoved by it. At best, bored. At worst, have a level of disdain. It's the disease. It's a veil, a hardness of heart. I wonder this morning if you've come to grips with this reality. I mean, I remember when I was a new Christian and I went to someone and I was telling them about all that I was learning, about my new life in Jesus and and how amazing the Bible was and all this stuff. And I remember them just thinking I was a lunatic. I was off my rocker. I was crazy. I had lost it. And I remember leaving so discouraged thinking, I must have done this wrong. I must have not shared my testimony right. I must have not have talked about Jesus in the right way. Why else would they be so bored or not enamored with Christ? How, How do they not see what I see in Jesus? I left so discouraged. But the gospel, as Paul writes, is veiled to some. Some people are just not merely colorblind. As it relates to Jesus, they're Jesus blind. My wife and I had to come to grips with this with our child. Be like, oh, they're colorblind. Now we set realistic expectations. They're just not going to be able to figure out red from yellow. Well, in some sense, we have to come to grips with this reality as well. Sometimes we have a response to the gospel in a child, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're applauded for our faith, and other times we're made fun of behind our backs. Sometimes people seek us out and want to know questions that they have related to God. Other times we're avoided because they know that we follow God. I think we got to come to grips with this reality. Not everyone is going to be impressed with the church. Not everyone is going to be impressed with our walk with Christ. Not everyone is going to be impressed with our morality. Not everyone is going to be impressed by our lives. Which makes it hard. And it can make it very discouraging at times. But that's the disease. Some hear the summons of the gospel and come and others hear it They are blinded. They have a veil. Their hearts are hardened. But we're not without hope, and this is kind of point two. That's the disease. There is a procedure that Paul points to starting in chapter 4. You see, when we're discouraged, all of us look for ways in which to encourage ourselves. And sometimes we try to take some shortcuts, like, okay, I'm discouraged. What do I got to do? What's the easiest way in order to encourage me right now? Our discouragements can become license to do things that we otherwise wouldn't do. But Paul here reminds us of a simple procedure that the church must follow time and time and time again, even in the midst of our discouragement. Chapter 4, verse 1. Look there. 
Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. And now here's the procedure. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I once heard a politician say that he has renounced dirty politics. Well, what Paul is saying is that he is renouncing dirty ministry. Evidently, there is a way of doing ministry in an underhanded way. There are ways in which to build the church through cunning and manipulation. To make Jesus more appealing, we in the midst of maybe our discouragement. Oh, God's not growing the church in America. What are we going to do? And so sort of a Machiavellian, the, the ends justify the means, we can seek to use underhanded tactics to engage in and to accomplish good and godly ends. I'll give you an example. 1991, Wall Street Journal wrote an article entitled Mighty fortresses, megachurches strive to be all things to all parishioners. I wish I was making up this article, but I'm quoting now. The article documents all these methods employed by some of these churches to boost attendance and draw a crowd. Quote, it was reported that one church spent half a million dollars on special effects designed to produce smoke, fire, sparks, and laser lights. Staff members were sent to Bally's Casino in Las Vegas to acquire the necessary skills to use the system. The first week of using this technology, the pastor and preacher, imagine me, after he preached his sermon, he ascended to heaven via invisible wires that drew him up out of sight while the choir began to sing and the fire and light show began. Can you imagine? The article ends this way. The pastor packs his church with special effects, cranks up a chainsaw and topples a tree to make a point. The biggest 4th of July firework display in town and a Christmas service with a rented elephant, kangaroo, and zebra. The Christmas show features a 100 clowns, terrifying, and gifts for all the children. Now, we're laughing at this and we're like, we would never... But I know this, that my guess is these churches, these pastors, they're not meaning to do anything. They're not trying to say, I'm trying to use manipulation or cunning. I'm not trying to do any of these sorts of things. They're just saying, well, what attracts people? I know, entertainment. And so, let's just use whatever attracts people and lead with that. And yet Paul strategically rejects the thing in their day which was so entertainment driven. He rejects it. His procedure is pretty simple. It's not to use sophisticated technology. It's not to use the best consumer strategies or the finest programs money can buy. He isn't going to dazzle with his long diatribes or become like a stand-up comedian in the pulpit. He's not going to use these Genius oratory skills like people in Corinth in his day. His procedure is simple. Verse 2 talks about the procedure negatively, but verse 5, if you go there, we, Paul talks about it positively. Verse 5, for we proclaim, not ourselves, here's the positive, we proclaim 
Jesus Christ as Lord. That's a simple procedure. Proclaim Jesus as Lord. You see, there's a, there's a tendency within all of us to preach ourselves, to sort of narcissistically make ministry about ourselves. We would never say it, but in many ways, sometimes that's how we build a church up. I was um, moved by something I read this past week in light of this. The great 19th century pastor in England, Robert Murray McChain, maybe you sometimes use his reading, uh, his yearly reading program. Well, he wrote in his journal after preaching a sermon, and this is what he wrote. I think this for sure arrested me, and I assume it will arrest you as well. He wrote this after preaching a sermon in his journal. He said, quote, today I missed a fine opportunity of speaking a word of Christ. The Lord saw that I would have spoken as much for my own glory as for his, and therefore he shut my mouth. I see that a man cannot be faithful, a fervent minister, until he preaches just for Christ's sake, until he gives up trying to attract people to himself and seeks to attract them to Christ. Lord, give me this. The procedure is simple. Paul preached Christ, pointed people to Christ, talked about Christ, gossiped about Christ, and then got out of the way of Christ. As verse 6 goes on to say, For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's procedure to preach Christ as Lord. To declare that, that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again to save sinners. Or to use the sort of imagery that he uses in verse 6, just as God in Genesis spoke light out of darkness, he was going to speak about the light of Jesus Christ to bring, to point people how to come out of darkness. That was Paul's procedure. And I know that in many ways this kind of is counter to what many people think. All the strategies about building the church is like, that's not how you build a church. That's not working. Don't you know that people can't sit still for more than five minutes. That's just not what we are anymore. We, we just can't pay attention for that long anymore. Preaching doesn't work. Teaching doesn't work. Sitting down and reading a book with someone about the gospel, that's not going to be an effective strategy. I mean, don't you know that I've got conflict with my daughter and you're going to tell me about Moses? What does Moses have to do with me? I mean, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I lost my job. I, I, I this, I that. I'm sick. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And you want to talk about the glory of Jesus Christ? There's a temptation in all of us to kind of move away from the procedure that Paul is prescribing to us. Jeremiah had this temptation. Remember, Jeremiah the prophet, discouraged preacher. He's preaching to people don't want his message. What he's selling, they don't want to buy. No effect. No one was listening. He wanted to quit. Remember Ezekiel? God brings him in a vision to this valley of dead people and says, preach to them and make them live. And 
Ezekiel's like, no thanks. I can't do that. I don't have the power to do that. Or if you think about Peter. Peter, who on Pentecost preaches a sermon and 3,000 souls are won to Christ. And then he began to drift. In Galatians 2, he's publicly rebuked from Paul because he married the politics of the day with the gospel. And if Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Peter can drift, so can I, so can you, so can we. This is the temptation within all of us when discouragement becomes to prey on us. So we're like, ah, does God's word really build up God's church? Maybe it's smoke machines. Maybe we should just figure out the formula instead of keep preaching about Christ. But the procedure is simple. Keep on, keep on preaching, teaching, telling, proclaiming Christ is Lord. We do it on Sundays and on Mondays, in small groups, at coffee shops, in family worship. Christ is Lord. That's the procedure, the simple procedure. And in so doing, a remedy is provided. Go, go back to chapter 3. I skipped the middle section. This really is the remedy for all of this. This is how this all kind of goes together. Verse 16. People's hearts are veiled. God calls us to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, but how does this all work itself out? Verse 16 to 18 tells us, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What is the remedy? We might put, who is the remedy? The Spirit, who applies God's message to the veiled hearts, thereby unveiling his majesty. You see, a Christian is someone who has turned to the Lord, that's verse 16, and the veil has been removed, and their heart has not merely been softened, that's not the language here, they've been given a whole new heart, one that pursues God, one that enjoys God, one that is encouraged by God, one that seeks to not only hear the call of the gospel, but wants to follow God. The, God, the Christian is he or she who, who has an encounter with God like Moses. That's verse 17. And then found the freedom from that encounter with God. Freedom in the God who would stoop so low as to come in the incarnation and die in the crucifixion to set the human heart and life and spirit and soul free. Or as Paul continues to say in verse 18, a Christian is he or she who, who
whose veil has been brought down from their eyes and who gazes at the glory of Christ and is therefore so thrilled and changed by him that they begin to radiate the glory of Jesus Christ themselves. Right? Moses encounters God and the glory of God and therefore radiates the glory of God. And so do all Christians. Now, not in the same way, not in the exact same way that Moses did, but in a true way and an external way. All those who have encountered Christ begin to radiate Christ. And you see it in the quiet perseverance of the saints. You see that glory in the gentleness of those who approach their brother and sister, even when their brother and sister maybe have said something hard or critical. You see this glory just bubbling up and bursting out in the love shown to those who the world would say does not deserve love. You see this glory in forgiveness granted and given. You see this glory bubbling up in people who show up to church to sing, to pray, to listen to God's Word, and to link arms together on the mission of God to make disciples throughout all the nations. You see this glory in different men and women exercising their spiritual gifts in the church. You see this glory as we sing songs, we feed the homeless as we live out faithful lives in our communities. You see this as men and women repent of their sins, publicly and privately. And I think this might be the great remedy for all of our discouragement, whether it's the garden variety ones or the I'm just in a season of sorrow and discouragement. To just see men and women sometimes just get out of bed, who have every reason to not get out of bed, and to gather with the saints and to pray and to keep on walking with Jesus, knowing that their pilgrimage each and every day is one step closer to the celestial city when they will not just experience a taste of glory, but they will see the person of glory for now and eternity. See, the remedy is God's Spirit. God's Spirit applied to the human heart and then bursting with newness of life. being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. If you've experienced Jesus, if you have an encounter with Jesus, if you've been changed with Jesus, better if Jesus lives within you, glory will radiate out of you. I mean, as cheesy as this can be, sometimes the great theology of little kids really is great theology, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, no, no. I'm going to let it shine. That's what Paul is getting at. The transformed life is going from one degree of glory to the next, and the glory of Jesus Christ is emanating out of us just like it did Moses. And I really do think this is probably the greatest balm and remedy against our discouragement. I think it's how Paul did not fall prey to discouragement, why he didn't give up. He was seeing glory in the church of Corinth. He was seeing glory in Troas, glory in Macedonia. Everywhere he went, he saw a taste of glory. He saw it in himself. 
He, he, he once was murdering Christians, and now he is pointing others to follow Christ at great cost of his own. He saw the glory of a transformed life all around him. He saw it acutely in baptism, but he saw it chronically in people's lives as they lived life together and kept on keeping on following Jesus day in, day out in the midst of discouragement. We all get discouraged. Lord knows I get discouraged perhaps more than most. But I know this, that I'm too weak in and of myself to just do this Christianity without seeing the transformation in your lives. There is nothing that encourages me more to see God's work in God's people, God's work in God's world, to see glory bursting out of people's lives and hearts being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. There is nothing that just pushes back the amnesia that God really is alive than seeing glory bursting out of the souls and faces and hands of people. Discouragement can prey upon us all, can't it? We can have those days. We can have those seasons. But God's Spirit, who applies God's Word to God's people, well, I hope that will encourage you all. Lord, we are so grateful that in the midst of all the things that our world would tell us to be discouraged by, all the news reports, we pray that one of the hallmarks of your church would be our resolute resolve to stare and revel more at the glory of Jesus Christ than the bad news we hear all around us. Lord, we pray that you would work in our lives in such an extent that we would see the growth, the maturity, the love, the, the fruit of the Spirit that is all around us, and that that would encourage us to keep on going. We thank you for your word. We continue to pray that you would apply it to our lives through your Spirit. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.